This week on Writers Inc. You know, I found when I when I was on the outside looking in, I always thought of publication of a book as almost like a validation, right? That only the best books get published and it validates your work and it's artistic and all that stuff. And I found that that's not true. <laughs> Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. JD, I'm excited to talk to you today. In real time, it's been a few weeks. Yeah, you too. It's It's been crazy. Um, I guess we're, we're just coming off of Christmas. I, I, we're finally in real time, I think, right now. Pretty too, close, the, yeah. The, the, pretty close to it, so... <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So if you're listening and it's Valentine's day coming up, then I'm totally off base on that. But, <laughs> but for us, it's the day after Christmas. Um, a lot of you guys, if you're following me on Twitter and some of these other things, you may know that I, I bought a house up on an, an Island off of um, the coast of New Hampshire. Uh, but it hasn't been renovated since like 1980, something like since Reagan was president. So we've got contractors like crawling over every inch of this place um, renovating. So like I, I've got a cold right now. I'm like all stuffed up from drywall dust. Um, and I'm like super excited because I just saw paint go up on the wall. Um, it, it's amazing what like little things will like like push you over the edge. Like I, somebody's cutting a hole for can lights in the kitchen. Like, oh, wow, <laughs> <laughs> finally something. Um, but yeah, so that, that's what's going on in my life right now. But how, how about you? How was your holiday? It was nice. Uh, we didn't travel yet. Uh, we, we stayed home on Christmas uh, with, with our meeting, my wife and my kids, but we're heading to Pittsburgh to visit extended family in a few days. And it's always a, a bit of a zoo. So I'm just, I'm in preparation mode for the visit. Whereas you, I think you're past it at this point. <laughs> yeah, we're on the tail end of, well, we've got a two-year-old. Um, she, well, she turned two in September. So we're trying to like space out the presents a little bit because she's got an attention span for like maybe three or four presents and then it kind of gets old. Um, you know, so she's opened a couple of them. Then we got a big old stack and we'll probably open a couple more tonight. Uh, but it, it's so cool. Like this is the first year where she really kind of understands what's going on. Um, you know, she likes, she sees wrap present. She's like, open present, open present. And she, she's like all into it. Cause you know, last year she just kind of like drooled on Santa and, you know, we snapped a couple pictures and, and that was it. But like, yeah. she's, she's totally present and she's starting to talk now. And it's just, it's amazing to watch them at that age. Oh, it's so great. The, the next, the next like three to five years with her, or it's just, it's just going to be so good for you at Christmas time. It's going to be the best. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to cherish those years. And then I'm, I'm guessing like around 14, um, if she looks anything like her mother, I'm probably just going to end up sitting out on the porch with a shotgun, just fighting <laughs> boys off. So I'm, I'm dreading the teenage years, but I've, I've got a little while before that comes about. Yeah, but you'd be surprised, man. You're just going to wake up one morning and she's going to be a teenager and you're going to be like, what the hell just happened? Yeah, well, see, I've got it. I can, I can point future boyfriends to my books. I can tell them to read those and that, that should throw a little bit of a scare at them. And if that doesn't work, we actually have a cemetery in our backyard. Um, so that, that, that should frighten a few people off, hopefully. Nice. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm trying to tell her she's not allowed to date till she's 25, but I, I remember when I was dating girls that age, that doesn't fly at all. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, at least you, you got some time to worry about it. So a little bit. Yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> well, cool. Before we get into uh, the interview for today, I wanted to just give you and the listeners a quick update on where I am with my idea generation project. Uh, the, the last time we spoke, I was going to go away and kind of bank a bunch of ideas and then run them past a few writer friends and kind of whittle it down and then and then put them in front of you and kind of get your thoughts on on what might be the the best uh most viable option as far as getting to agents and editors and in the process i used the pixar pitch which i i shared with you as a way of sort of codifying the the pitches so that they're all the same and i can kind of balance them out and compare the ideas one against the other and uh, I think I'm really leaning towards like elevated horror. I think that's what you called it, right? Um, yeah, there, there's been a lot of that lately, and yeah. I, I think it's really going to pick up. Um, you know, movies like It Follows, or you know, Josh's movie Bird Box. Um, you know, obviously the book behind it. Um, but it, there's you know just a really cool thing, like a trend happening with horror, where it's not just you know about scares anymore. Um, to me, like if you can if you watch a movie and you turn the sound off, if it doesn't scare you then it's not really a horror movie. Like if you take an old black and white horror movie, you know, from the, the 50s, 60s or whatever, and you kill the sound, you know, they can still frighten you because they didn't have special effects back then. They didn't rely on music. They relied on nothing but the atmosphere and the, the, the actors and the actresses um, and the, the story itself. And I, I think in a lot of ways, filmmakers have gotten lazy um, and, and, and they rely on those things. So yeah, take any, any, you know, modern day horror movie, turn the sound off and see if it frightens you. And for the most part, you're, you're going to be bored to death. Um, and that translate that translates to books. You know, they're they're obviously, you know, if you look back at the source material that they used for those older movies, um, you know, it, it's evolved quite a bit. I just bought a ton of uh, Creepshow comics. Um, I, I found online uh, the original Creepshow comics, um, and it's 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 kind of neat to be able to read what they based a lot of those things on. You know, the movies that I saw in the '70s and '80s were based on those types of ideas, um, and today's movies are obviously based on today's books. And, and everybody's taking their game up a notch. And I think that's that's where you're at. And I, I think if, if you focus on that area, I think you're going to do well. It's it's definitely a strong strong genre right now. Excellent, and it's one I love. I love uh, I love watching and reading that type of horror, and uh, and I'm trying to also I'm I'm trying to get a, a bunch of variances on the pitches. We talked a little bit about Stranger Things and how some of the New York editors are chasing that. So some of the pitches are set in the '80s, some are set in the '90s, some involve kids, some don't. Some are historical, some are contemporary. So I'm, I'm really trying to like some, one's a sci-fi setting. So I'll be really curious to kind of see you know which of those ideas kind of bubble to the surface and then which ones to move forward with. So. Well, there seems to be like a 20 to 30 year lag time on, on certain things. Like if you go back to the '80s, a lot of the focus was on the '50s. Um, you know, then it then it kind of jumps. You know, so right now there's there's a heavy focus on the '80s, but I think in a lot of ways that might be burning out. I think we're coming to the tail end of it. Um, and you know, obviously the '90s are up next, right? Um, and that's you know, it's it's it, you know, you've seen it throughout history. So, and we, we've talked about the the amount of time that it takes, you know, to, to write a book and to edit a book and get it in front of an editor and get a publisher to pick up on it. You know, there could be two years from the time you you know finish that up before it's actually on a bookshelf somewhere. Um, so I, I think if you're focusing on, on a timeline like that, I, I would probably shoot for the nineties at this point. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. So, all right. Well, you ready to, uh, talk about our guest on this episode? Yeah. Al Alma is a lot of fun. Um, she, she's going to go into her history a little bit and I don't want to give any spoilers away, but she's, she's worked for the government. Let's put it, put it that way. <laughs> um, and, and she's, she's always so even keeled. I mean, that, that's what kills me. And I, I'm guessing that comes from her, her job, you know, her personality is just kind of like that, but you know, like she's the person, if you're in a, in a building and it's on fire and you're on the 50th floor and you need to get to the bottom, she's the one you should probably follow out. 
Um, and, and you're going to get that, like just listening to her, like she's just, you know, nothing, nothing seems to fluster her. She just takes whatever's thrown at her and she just kind of says, okay, that's what's happening now. And, and sort of moves on, you know, whether it's something in her personal life or, or something in the, the writing world. Um, and, and, you know, you, you need a thick skin in, in this world if you want to become a professional writer and, and she's definitely got it. Um, so I'm looking forward to this. How did you guys uh, get to know each other? We actually met at Thriller Fest. Um, she was on her, I think, second publisher. Um, the Hunger was coming out, um, and we had a lot of people in common. Um, I had Dracul coming out, um, which was Putnam, and she was, I, I don't know if she was on Putnam or another Random House uh, imprint, um, but it's all basically one big family there. So a lot of the marketing people, a lot of the editors, everybody all everybody works together. Um, so we were introduced at Thriller Fest at the cocktail party and, and just talked, and we've, we've run into each other at a couple of events since then. Um, and she, she's always a, a lot of fun to talk to. Great. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to some nuggets of wisdom coming from Alma. So why don't we get into the interview and then you and I will come back after for some takeaways. So I thought a great place to start because this is not where interviews typically start. Uh, I was wondering if you would be willing to tell us a story about what happened to you when you turned 40. Oh, yeah. So that's really how I ended up coming back to writing. Before then, when I was very young, I, I you know, I, like most writers, you know, I always had my nose in a book. And when you're a little kid, you think this is what I'd like to do someday, right? I want to become a writer. But then life intercedes. And um, I, I was a newspaper reporter when I was very young. But then um, I ended up going to work for the Defense Department and not just any part of the Defense Department. I went, ended up working for the intelligence community. So um, I went to work for NSA and I did that actually because, you know, people had always said, if you want to be a writer, if you want to write novels, you actually have to have something to write about. And you're a kid. You know, what do you know? You've, you've never done anything. So I thought, well, this sounds like an adventure. I'll go do it. And I thought I'd only do it for a few years. Well, I ended up making a whole career out of it. And um, the writing had to go by the wayside because when you're in intelligence, they really don't like you to get your name out there for anything else, yeah, regardless of whether or not yeah, it's associated with, with your work or not. So I stopped. And I had a pretty intensive career, uh, especially around the mid-career part. At that time, I was a national intelligence officer and had just gone through about 10 years of running um, like uh, emergency response kinds of things for the Defense Department. So wherever there was a war or peacekeeping operation or something like that, I was back stateside usually running teams and so pretty intensive. And when I was 40, one day, I'll never forget because I was supposed to go to a war game that day and um, be one of the, uh, you know, experts that represented um a character in the war game so that the participants could you know would bounce problems off me and i woke up and i had complete vertigo a complete look room was spinning i could feel my eyeballs slapping around in my head not kidding it was horrible well the worst was yet to come because it didn't let up for months <laughs> almost a year and it's a really hard thing to diagnose and so while I was waiting to be diagnosed, um, and I couldn't do anything, I couldn't watch TV, I couldn't use a computer, um, I could just stand there and just feel the room spinning or watch, you know, when my eyes were open, it was constant movement in front of my eyes. And while I was waiting to get into a, a special dizziness lab at Johns Hopkins, I started writing fiction again to just take my mind off of things. And the doctors I was seeing while I was waiting to see the specialists 
you know, we're saying there's a good chance that because it happens sometimes where it never stops. Oh, believe my. It or not. And they're like, you might not be able to go back to work. You know, they had ruled out the worst things, you know, like brain tumor and, and that sort of thing. Went through tons of tests. And the only thing that kind of took me out of my misery <laughs> was writing fiction. Although I, it was terrible. I, what I wrote was horrible. But all that mattered was, you know, I was like writing in longhand and it would just take my mind off my problems. So I said, you know, if I ever get better, I'd like to try again. But now I knew how hard it was to really master something. And I said, so this time I'm going to, you know, I didn't, I didn't go back with any intention of becoming published. That just seemed like a crazy goal. No, I really wanted to learn what it took to write a novel. So it took about nine months and we got the vertigo to stop. And uh, I actually take medication to this day, 20 years later, to suppress the vertigo. Um, but I decided I was going to do it. And it took about 10 years to get a book to the, the state where somebody actually wanted to publish it. But that was that was the journey. And I understand that's like not uncommon. A lot of people have this sort of epiphany at around 40 where they decide they're going to they're going to go back to their their passion and, and give it a try. Yeah, it was 38 for me. So I can. Oh, I can totally oh, right, relate you to that. At 38, was there something like some event? Uh, just just your good old fashioned run of the mill uh, midlife crisis, I think. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Keep it on a sports car. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, a little more lonely, but it works. Uh, I, I can't wait to talk about some of your books, but I, I wanted to ask a follow-up and I understand there's, there's only certain, you know, things you can talk about in, in a vague sense, but where were you or what were you doing on September 11th, 2001? Yeah, that's a great story. So I was uh, a, a national intelligence officer at the time for NSA and believe it or not, I was supposed to go down to the old executive office building, which is right next to the White House. That's where the National Security Council is. They had just brought in a new senior director in my area, and I was supposed to meet with him that day. So I was waiting <laughs> to jump in my car and drive down there. And I was in my office, and all of us had our offices in sort of communal space. And there was a TV in, in one of the communal areas. And all of a sudden, I noticed the other officers were all gathered around the TV, and I'm looking at the computer and these, what we call flash messages when there's an emergency was going out. And then it was like, you know, the first plane hit um, the towers and there was just mass confusion. We assumed at that time that it was just like an aviation era, as weird as it be, right? Like some incredibly inept pilot had somehow managed to get into restricted airspace and ran. And then when the second one hit, you know, we knew something was up. And so I'll never forget, because, you know, especially that agency is geared towards dealing with emergencies, but we were in completely new territory. And th just that feeling of what the bleep is going on and, you know, wh what kind of protocol is going to click into place. You know, it was a work day. The buildings were full, thousands and thousands of people. And the next thing we knew, they were telling people that they had to go home. And the reason why was they had, uh, you know, they they were the plane in, in um, Pennsylvania had gone down. You know, there was the attack on the Pentagon and they were afraid there were going to be more against government installations like this that that um, fulfilled a critical role in emergencies. So they and the most important thing is the people. 
right? So they were telling everybody to go home. And it was the hardest thing to leave the building that day. It, it still had the emergency watch staff were there, but to have to go home and just wait by your phone for three days, I don't think I moved off the couch. I, you know, just watched CNN constantly. Everyone was just waiting for the call to go back. Also, because you know, the intelligence that might have indications and help decision makers is piling up back at the building, right? It needs people to go through it. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that. It, it, uh, to this day, I can just feel that feeling of helplessness in the pit of my stomach. Well, I'm sure that's not a coincidence that uh, that that feeling has made such an impression on you. And I'm wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about how either that work or that particular situation has kind of found its way into your fiction. Well, you know, I used to think, especially since I write, you know, more on the supernatural end of things and the horror end of things, I used to think that there was no relationship between my career and intelligence and the writing I did. And then when my first book came out, I was at a meeting at Simon and Schuster. They were the published my publishers at the time. And one of the, the folks there turned to me and she said, you know, your, your books are so twisted and everyone's so manipulative. It doesn't have anything to do with your career. And I looked at her and I said, no. And then I thought, wait a minute. Genius. Yes, it does. <laughs> that is exactly the environment that, you know, I've spent most of my adult life in. So that's part of it. I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, that is, um, you know, I've been, I was at two agencies for most of my career. One was NSA and the other one was CIA. And CIA is, you know, most people know CIA better. And what they're known for is, you know, those are the people that find spies. It's, it's what we call human or human intelligence. And unfortunately, to be a good spy master, you have to be kind of manipulative. I'm, I'm not saying that they're manipulative always in a bad sense, although some of them are, but it is just a trade craft that you learn. And so I find that my characters tend to be super manipulative. And then the second thing is, is the middle of my career, I spent working on complex contingency operations, which if you remember the 90s, you know, it was peacekeeping operations because there were a lot of genocides and you know, multinational coalitions and that sort of thing. So I did a lot of work supporting those. So every every humanitarian disaster, but worse, every like genocide and mass atrocity, I was very much working in those environments. And I realized that it probably, you know, I just know so much more about the terrible things that people do to each other. And it's really hard to believe that, that that's reality, but that's reality. And so I, I think a lot of that horror just carries over into my writing. You know, I think very little of people, basically. <laughs> oh, that's, like a, that's a great tweetable quote right there. I just, you know, I love it. Uh, you, you know, it's, I think what's really great about that is that it's, you really have a unique, distinct voice and it would have been very, not easy, but it would have been very straightforward for you to, to, to parlay your experience in intelligence agencies into the spy thriller genre. But I instead, you sort of took a, a, a different approach. And, and I want to I read you a tweet, which <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you've read many times. But uh, uh, this, this, I'd like to talk about this for a second. Uh, the tweet is, uh, The Hunger by Alma Katsu, deeply, deeply disturbing, hard to put mm -hmm. down, not recommended reading after dark. And uh, that is from Stephen King. 
Uh, yeah. So tell me about that. <laughs> oh my God. Well, first of all, I never expected to, for Stephen King to ever look at one of my books, really. <laughs> you know, he's, he's a super generous guy and I know he's really great, but as a writer, you never think you're going to win the lottery, right? You're not going to get Willy Wonka's golden ticket. You're happy for the guys who get it and you, you wish it would happen to you. So, you know, about the blurbing stage, you know, it's, I can't remember, six months or so, maybe before your book is going to come out, you get together with your agent and your editor and you all brainstorm, who can we possibly ask to blurb the book? Usually there has to be some kind of connection. And I think at that point, somebody was going to try to reach out to Stephen King. But then, of course, the months went by and we didn't hear anything. And I go out on tour and I was going to the Poison Pen bookstore in um, Arizona and I'd never been there before, but um, my publisher puts you up at this really fun hotel. It's very retro, 50-ish kind of, and it's literally across a plaza from the bookstore. So even if you've never been there, you can't miss it. And because it's so close, I was cutting it kind of until the last minute to go over there. And the other weird thing about this event was um, I was appearing with Brad Meltzer. What happened was they booked me first, and then they called me up later and they said, oh, we apologize so much, but would you mind terribly appearing with Brad Meltzer, Brad, New York Times, number one best-selling author, Meltzer, because this is the only day he can appear. Our books came out on the same day. And I was like, oh, let me think about that for <laughs> one hot second, of course. So I was, you know, no one cares about me. They, they're there to see Brad Meltzer and I'm happy to just stand there and smile in front of all his fans. So I'm waiting until the last minute and I'm putting my makeup on, staring in this mirror and behind me, my cell phone starts to go off, you know, and I'm like, who could be calling me? No one ever calls me except for my husband. And I'm thinking, what could he be calling me about at the last minute? So I almost didn't answer it. But then it just, it's like going off continuously so much so that it's like falling off the table. It's, you know. And so I go and I look at it and everybody I know <laughs> is tweeting me, calling me, Stephen King just blurbed your book. <laughs> and the next thing I know, somehow I'm across the plaza and I'm at the bookstore and I'm in a daze. And Barbara, the woman who owns the store, and Brad Meltzer were sitting on the stage and they turn around and they're, they're looking at me like, what is wrong with that woman? And I walk up there and I hold out my phone and I go, Stephen King just blurred my book. <laughs> and Brad looks at me and he grabs the phone and he turns around and he holds it up in front of his whole audience. And he says, Stephen King just blurred my book. <laughs> oh my and he reads it out. So he's super generous too, I have to say. He, he was amazing to be with. But it is like an experience like no other. I mean, you know, I've briefed at the cabinet level. I've briefed secretaries, right, of, of the state and that sort of thing. Um, I didn't brief the president, but I briefed just about everybody else. I briefed Congress. Nothing compared to this feeling. <laughs> Nothing. It was just amazing. And then we got to email each other a little bit the next few days and that was like wow Ooh. i mean you just feel like you're talking to the most powerful man on earth first of all. <laughs> <laughs> because literally for 24 hours it didn't stop there were and and i'm a, an analyst by trade and i'm a social media analyst um for the last 10 years and so i i try to notice metrics i, I have never seen anything i've never personally experienced anything like this Every 10 minutes, one to 200 
tweets or retweets or something like that for 24 hours. Wow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like an avalanche. It is. And that's what I mean. I was like, who else has that kind of leverage? I, I can't yeah. imagine what it must be like to have that kind of power at your fingertips. Please tell me you printed that out and framed it and put it on your wall or something. Well, let's memorize. <laughs> I might get it tattooed. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's a great idea. You know, and my husband, my husband is, is a musician and he's kind of a Buddhist. He doesn't really read horror or anything. And when I read him the tweet, he goes, is that a good thing? <laughs> is that going to scare people away? But um, yeah, it, it's interesting too, though. Some people on tour have said to me, you know, if it's too scary for Stephen King, I don't think I can read it. And then I'm like, you know, that's a little hyperbole. I'm sure it's not too scary. For oh, well, let's let's get into that a little bit. Uh, the hunger, the taker. I mean, I am a uh, I'm a trained historian and and the, the, the supernatural angle you bring to history is phenomenal. So I cannot wait for the deep. Can can you give us sort of the you know, the, the premise and as much as you're willing to share before that, that book is out. Cause uh, it, it looks incredible. Well, I'll try. <laughs> like the, it's actually like a little wilder than, than the, um, the hunger was because the hunger, even though it had this supernatural twist, which of course didn't occur in real life, we can only assume um, it did follow the story of the Donner party fairly closely. I mean, literally I went through day by day. I had to know exactly where they were on um, every day, you know, on the map, what they were doing, that whole thing. So it followed that story very, very closely. And the deep is a little bit, um, gets away from history a little bit more. So it's, um, it's sort of a love story, ghost story based on the sinking of the Titanic, but also it's the sinking of the sister ship the Britannic, which had been converted to a hospital ship for World War I. And that's actually where the idea for the story came. My husband was watching this documentary about the first time they were able to dive to the Britannic because it's in a really tempestuous area um, of a strait. And so as we were watching this, and I'm like, I can't believe I didn't know there was a sister ship to the Titanic. And then they talked about a woman who actually survived both sinkings. Wow. And right there, I knew, okay, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah. So, but the, you know, with the challenge with anything that well known, because, you know, before I wrote The Hunger, I thought, well, everybody knows about the Donner Party. And I found out that, no, <laughs> everybody doesn't know about the Donner Party. And those who do actually really don't know a lot about it. I didn't know a lot about it. And I was amazed once I got into the history, what a crazy ass story that is <laughs> from the beginning to the end. And everybody only knows the end. So, you know, that's when as a writer, right, you just go, wow, I am the luckiest person, right? Think of this. And so it was kind of the same thing with the Titanic, but it was daunting because, you know, people really get into the Titanic and a lot of people really get into the Titanic. And so, you know, it's a double-edged sword where you've got all these details that are great and you can sort of springboard off of, but at the same time, it's a little scary because you know, you, if, if you wanted to just write, you know, a nonfiction book about it, like an Eric Larson book or something, that's great, but you're writing fiction. So you're, you're taking that story, but you're using it to hopefully, I don't want to say tell something more, but tell something different at least. So, you know, which, which facts do you keep? 
which facts do you alter a little bit, you know, for good reason, never for no damn good reason at all. And, um, you know, and go from there. So um, it just makes it like a really fun way to write a story, like having some rules. I guess that's what they say, right? Art, you can create better art with constraints. You know, if you have no constraints on you whatsoever, it's kind of hard to know what to do. Yes. Good point. Uh, and this is, uh, I've been sort of wanting to, transition into asking you about the business side of stuff and I had some questions but then I thought in our email exchange you you seem pretty adamant that you had something to say about the business of writing so oh. I, I, I totally want to like give you the opportunity to start that part of the conversation well you know I don't know that I'm gonna have anything original to say <laughs> that's okay <laughs> but if you have folks out in your audience who are kind of getting started or aspiring to write I know some of the things that were uh, an awakening for me, and I don't know if it was because, you know, I spent most of my time in the government, and so you don't have the profit, um, you know, um, motivation, you know, you don't understand that commercial drive. So maybe it's just my own stupidity and ignorance, and uh, other people don't get through this. But, you know, I found when I, when I was on the outside looking in, I always thought of publication of a book as almost like a validation, right? That only the best books get published and it validates your work and it's artistic and all that stuff. And I found that that's not true, <laughs> right? There's, of course, there's many, many great books that get published, but there's many clunkers and goodness has nothing to do with commercial success. <laughs> and so, you know, when I try to, to emphasize, and I find a lot of people who come up and talk to me at conferences and stuff, aspiring writers, they kind of do have that in their head. You know, a, a, it's a little bit on the validation side. And, um, but what they have to understand is that, you know, writing a great, writing the best story you can is, is a given, but this is a business. And you're there to work with your business partners, which are your publishers and your agent, to make them money. And if you can't make the money, you won't get a contract again. <laughs> so, you know, you have to just bear that in mind. And I've, like with some readers, I can tell they're sort of disappointed because they think they really hold on to that romantic notion, right? That a book is your baby. And, you know, like a mother, you're going to be as true to your baby as possible. And you would never, you know, prostitute your baby by changing something. But in the real world, you're trying to make a book as accessible as possible to give it the widest audience and the greatest chance of success. So how do you do that? It's tough. <laughs> um, it's, it's a learning experience. Yeah. So like my first book, The Taker, that was my heart book, right? Everybody's first book is probably their heart book. I worked on that sucker for 10 years. <laughs> I had an idea and... I learned very slowly, and maybe not even by the end of that book, that my ideas weren't always the best ideas, <laughs> right? Like I like particular things, but maybe it only that same thing appeals to such a minority of readers. And um, so that book got published, and you know, it, it's it's a crazy book. It's a wild book. And shortly after it got published, some authors who knew a lot more than me came up and were telling me, wow, that was a gutsy book to publish. And I'm like, really? Now I know what they were talking about because it was so strange. It was very true. It was very honest in a lot of ways. 
um, but it was very different and dark and strange. And now I know that as, as, you know, as much as I like that book for some of the things, to purposely do that is not really in my best interest or the best interest of my publisher. So, you know, well, there's a lot of crazy things, right? So um, I, I did a trilogy, but by the, and this happens to so many writers, um, it's a lot of things happen at your publisher that you have no control over, but that will determine the success of your book and your future books. So for instance, um, for that first book, it sold simultaneously to US and the UK publishers. My UK publisher was an extremely um, experienced fiction editor and my US editor was not. She had never edited fiction before. So I've, it turns out that the UK editor kind of took the lead in the edits and that's why it's a fabulous I mean, it really was well edited. Of course, she could have warned me about some of the crazy things I put in there that would turn some people off, but hey. Anyway, and then she left. Two weeks after the book was published, she jumped houses. Also, some things happened to my US publisher, even though they had made a big commitment to the book and were um, putting a lot of marketing and publicity behind it. Some things happened with personnel at the publisher that were negative for the book. And so, and then the book didn't sell as well as they'd hoped. Does a book ever sell as well as a publisher? Probably not, right? <laughs> right. You can sell a million copies and they'll still wish you had sold two million. So, um, although to be honest, most of us are not in that position. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so they did hang in with me, but the second book sold many fewer copies. And then the third book, even fewer still. And by that time I was orphaned in the UK, meaning... I never got a replacement, you know, when the acquiring editor leaves, a lot of times you just kind of get a nanny editor that you can talk to, but they're, they're not going to put any effort into your book. And kind of the same thing happened on the U.S. side too. And it kind of looked like my career was over. It's hard to, and, and this is so common. How do you come back from when you got those crappy sales? And also the genre was kind of dying, that whole, you know, it wasn't horror. It was sort of in that direction. Horror adjacent, let's say. It was supernatural, um, but it was a big love story. It was a big, dark, kind of not good love story. I mean, like, by kind of not good, I mean, like, not romantic. It wasn't Twilight. It was, it was actually touted as the adult Twilight, which only served to piss off the Twilight fans. <laughs> right, right. So I was screwed. Every way you looked at it, I was just screwed. So um, I was, I, I got a new agent, wonderful agent. And um, we were working on another book that was kind of in that ballpark. Um, it was still supernatural. It didn't have like a, a regular supernatural trope, right? Because Taker books don't, they're not vampire books. They're, they're not like that. They have their own mythology. But an opportunity came along. And so this is also part of the business, you know, you, if you're not part of it and you don't know the authors and you, you, you don't learn the stories behind the deals, you just see the deals that are being made and you think, wow, that author must be hot. Or a lot of it is like who, you know, and you know, you partner with somebody on one project, you partner with somebody on another project. And at the time there was really this movement towards big blockbuster deals, right? Multimedia deals. 
So they were trying to sell book, film, and any other rights they could at the same time to try to get as much eyeballs on, you know, the project. So um, these folks, Glasstown Entertainment is the name of the company, approached my agent and asked if I would be interested in working on a project with them. And nobody expected me to say yes, apparently. They all told me later. But I did, surprise. And the reason I did is the Glasstown people, it's two women who are also authors. They're young adult authors. But they are really successful at selling film rights. Really successful. Now, they only had done YA up until this point. So I was going to be their first adult fiction. And it's not work for hire. We're partners on it. We, we come up with the stories and develop the the stories and then I write them and they edit them. But um, so the reason I did it is I, you know, the taker, we never sold the film rights and it's a hard thing to sell film rights as I'm finding out, even though it seems like in this day and age, everybody's selling film rights yeah. to everything. Here's my used Kleenex, give me <laughs> film rights. Um, and lo and behold, they got the film rights option by Ridley Scott before we even had a book deal. Wow. I know. And so then when you get that, then the deals are humongous. I mean, so that's that's why people do these multimedia deals. And it did. It got um, preempted. So it didn't even make it to auction. We got such a good deal. They took it off the table. And yeah, it's it was a crazy ride. But in addition to that, I never thought the book would be as critically successful as it's been. I mean, I don't know if you heard, but the last, what's well, been, what, a year and a half, almost two years. Like, I never thought it would make best book of the year lists and stuff like that, but it did. And it got nominated for all these awards. So it's been a great partnership. And I learned a lot from, from the women who um, run that company because it's in the editing. I don't know how you feel, but to me, I can write and write and write. And unless you've got a really good editor, you don't really learn like what you're doing wrong and what you could improve on. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And and I had unfortunately, except for that first UK editor who's very good, I hadn't had a good editor since then. And I felt like I was falling into some really bad habits. And my agent, for instance, was really having a hard time getting behind the other book that I'd been developing. And I, I think it was because of I just couldn't see where I was bad. And so working with, especially this one woman, Lexa Hiller, Hillier at Glasstown, she's a very strong editor that it's, it's sharpened me up in a lot of ways. Like I can, now I can see, you know, this is a much better choice for this character, or this is a much better way to drive the drama, you know, to make the story more compelling, those types of things that you often don't see for yourself. So it, it's been great. It's made me a better writer. And since then, um, I've really had this proliferation of projects. Now, I, I, it's funny you mentioned the spy novel before, but I did sell a second series to Putnam. And so my first spy novel comes out in 2021. And hopefully that's going to be its own series. And I'm developing a couple other projects and also some film projects. So, you know, it was taking, it was being, um, I don't know if it's stupid or stubborn, or brave enough to say, to take a choice that's kind of scary, but you know, you're gonna do it. And, and really what made it easier for me was that career and intelligence is, a, it's collaborative. 
right? You're used to working with other people. I've been at RAND for a couple of years and same thing. You work on huge projects on huge teams and you learn from each other. And so I knew it would make me better. It, it was just going to be painful, right? Yes. <laughs> working on a team, but I knew it would make me better. And writer friends of mine at the time were like, oh, you're not going to like it. I can't believe you're doing this. And I'm like, I'm doing it. And thank God I did because my career has just changed so much. Yeah, and I'm gonna stop talking because man, you're probably sick of hearing me. No, this is this is great. Uh, this is great. I, I I sort of like to conclude these interviews by asking authors sort of the same question, and I'll I'll sort of set this one up for you because I think a lot of people who are outside of the industry or who are not part of the traditional publishing industry feel like that uh, once you get that agent and an agent sells that manuscript, that you can just go off into the woods and sit at a typewriter and type and, and your work is done as far as the business side of things go. So I'm wondering if maybe you could explain sort of what your approach or philosophy is on the business side of writing. Sort of, so once you've, once you've gotten your craft down and, and, you, and you're producing the books, what about all the other stuff you have to do? So first I got to say, <laughs> I knew you would right? say that. <laughs> Any, I mean, I know people think that. Are they insane? <laughs> what business can you just sit on your butt, your laurels, and think that everything you do is is just going to have an audience that people are always, I mean, you'd run, you'd run your business into the ground if you ran a business like that, right? Yes. And I think it's, it's like a happy fantasy that we want to buy into, but it, that's just not the way life works. And that probably is a rude wake-up call for everybody after their first book, after they get beat up on book tours. You know, when you're a, a first-time, when you're a debut author and you go on book tour and nobody shows up <laughs> at most of your readings. And, you know, these things just start piling up and you think, holy crap, what have I gotten myself into? And, and do I want to continue doing it? And then if you can get over that, then you realize you know, you're a small business, even though you have an agent. And that's the other thing too. Like, don't think your agent and your editor are your mommy and daddy who are going to love you forever, no matter what you do, that you can, you know, pull temper tantrums with them, or you can, you know, drunk butt dial them at three o'clock <laughs> in the morning. These are business relationships and they will appreciate it if you are a good business partner. I mean, I keep that four in my mind all the time. So, you know, there's one, and one of the other most important things is making friends in the industry. And that means other authors, because, um, well, first of all, you need somebody to talk to when things come up. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? You know, I need a new agent. Who, who, who have you heard is good? You know, other authors will, will be on the level with you. And, and, uh, you know, one funny thing is when my first book came out, um, I did the debut authors year with international thriller writers. They have a great program for debuts and it culminates at thriller fest. They put you all up on the, on the stage and you all get to talk one at a time at, about your books. And there's like 20, 30 people at a time. I was at it this year. I saw it firsthand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I met some of my best friends in the business up, up on that. We're still great friends to this day. On one side was Allison Liotta. And Allison, if you don't know her, she is a Harvard graduate lawyer who worked at Justice Department. She's tall, thin, and beautiful. 
very well-spoken. And I thought I'm going to hate her. <laughs> I'm short, fat, old, and um, not Allison. And she turned to me. I mean, we we're sitting right next to each other and she was so nice. I'm like, damn it. I'm going to really like this woman. Damn it. And we're best friends to this day. Um, and then on the other side was Jennifer Hillier, Jar of Hearts. She just won the best thriller of the year award. At the other end is a gentleman named Todd Ritter, who more people know him these days as Riley Sager. Well, Jennifer, Todd, and I were all at the same publisher, and all of us just sank like stones, right? I don't want to blame the publishing house, but I do think that maybe they were going through something at the time, let's just say. And we all ended up being in the same boat where we had to, you know, our, we thought our careers were over. And so, you know, Jen, I, I kind of shifted gears a little bit. Um, Jennifer got another publishing house and Todd completely reinvented himself writing these, um, you know, psychological suspense thrillers under a female pen name and is now like hitting the New York Times bestseller with every book that comes out. And, you know, you don't get to that unless you go through, which 99% of authors do, the really tough times. And then you got to ask yourself, do I want to stay in the business? And what am I willing to do, right? What do I need to learn? What do I need to change? You know, how do I need to change my behaviors? And if you're lucky, you know, you'll be successful on the other side, but it's a never ending learning experience. And you just have to keep putting your ego aside over and over again and be willing to learn from other people. That is fantastic advice, whether you're a writer or a bricklayer or an yeah. auto mechanic. <laughs> right. 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 Put your ego aside and be a lifelong learner. That is fantastic advice. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and... Alma, it was such a pleasure uh, speaking with you today. I'm, I'm so, so grateful for, uh, for all of your wisdom and, and JD and I are just so excited to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. This is, you know, JD is a great example. We met, I think we met at a thriller fest. I can't remember exactly. We did, and then we did um, a panel together at Boston Book Fest. And he was so, not, I mean, first of all, he's great to listen to him and Daker, Stoker. They're so much fun to listen to. I could have just sat there and listened to him through the whole panel. And then they just both been so sweet and so supportive and so generous. So, you know, he's just a great example of, you know, these, you meet these people and you, you know, the good ones just reach out to them and, and, you know, and develop something, hopefully a friendship with them and, and it'll just, you know, enrich your life. All right. So that was our interview with Alma Katsu. And uh, as promised, I think there are some gems in there. Uh, JD, what's one thing that you heard Alma say that really resonated with you or, or something you thought would be really important for listeners to focus on? Um, for me, I love hearing writers' backstories and what actually got them to the point where they're, you know, finally sitting down at a desk and writing a book. Um, and it makes, you know, like she had some, some, you know, bad things that happened to her, some good things that happened to her, you know, just like anybody else. But it makes you wonder, like, if, you know, if those things didn't line up exactly the way that they did, like, would she be doing this today? Or would she still be working in, in D.C. somewhere, you know? It's, it's, 
crazy. I mean, I, I've had some, some horrible stuff happen in my life, but at the same time I look at it and like, if that didn't happen, then, you know, B, C and D wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Um, and, and she's kind of got, got that going on. Um, and just her, her takeaway, just on the business itself. Um, you know, it, and we talked about this, I think before, like Hollywood just portrays writers in a, in a certain, you know, certain feel like, you know, they, they sit down at their, their big Oak desk in front of a big window overlooking a lake somewhere. And they, they pound out five or six pages and, you know, by 11 o'clock in the morning, they're done and they're, they're off, you know, doing whatever they're, you know, but it, it, it's not that romantic. I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly awesome job to have. Don't get me wrong. Um, but like for me personally, like I, I get up first thing in the morning, I write, I try to pound out all my words by like 11 and then at 11 o'clock I switch gears and I have to start working on marketing and answering all the emails and talking to my agents and trying to figure out all these different things that are happening. Um, and it's not just here in the U S and she kind of touched on this, but with international publishers, you know, you, you, your book comes out at different times. Um, you know, sometimes they coordinate it like us and UK are pretty consistent as far as choosing the same date, but you know, like in Spain and Turkey and Russia, this country and that country, your book is going to come out on different dates. You know, I'm still talking to people about fourth monkey, which came out in the U S year, years ago. Um, it's being released in, in brand new countries. Um, you know, that's four five, six books ago for me. So you have to, you know, kind of take a step back as if it's still fresh, um, and present the same story over and over again. Um, you know, you, cause you get the same interview questions over and over again. Um, but that's all, that's all part of the business and it, you know, you, you, you have to be able to, to roll with it. Yeah. I thought it was, uh, also, uh, I'm always looking for, for themes and for trends, uh, in, in everything. Um, I'm sure you do as well. And one of the things that I hear over and over again is how important it is to make authentic connections with people in your industry, not sleazy networking, but making like genuine mm -hmm connections, making friends. And, and Alma talked about that too, and how important she thought that was. Has that been something that's been important in your career? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, cause for the most part, writers are all introverted. Um, you know, so uh, Thriller Fest where, where I met Alma is, is a really good example of that. You know, they, they personally, they create a lot of scenarios where you're stuck talking to other people. Um, you know, they have cocktail parties, they have this party, they have that party and they give away free drinks. There's free drink <laughs> coupons because you can put writers in a room, but they will still stare at each other until the alcohol starts flowing. Uh, but once you start talking to people, you know, you realize, you know, everybody is in, you know, kind of the same boat, you know, we're introverted and that's why we are writers. Um, but everybody's got a lot of the same experiences. A lot of the same people have worked with a lot of the other same people. Um, and just getting to know each other and, and getting to know other writers that are at the same stage that you are, or one step ahead of you or one step below you, you know, those types of things. And below you is not the right term, but you know what I mean? Like, you know, one or two books behind you or whatever right. it might be, um, you know, get to know those people and, you know, because you can answer questions for them. Like you're going to be reaching up and you're going to ask questions of somebody that's been there, done that. And sooner or later, you're that person, you know, so try to, you know, pay it forward, pay it back and try to help each other out. And you're going to find that in the writer community. It's, it's really like that. And Thriller Fest for me is, is still my favorite because um, it's right there in New York. You get a lot of the, the big name editors, a lot of the authors and agents, everybody all kind of shows up. Um, and from a networking standpoint, you get to meet everybody. Um, and you really do need to take the time to do that. And if, if you go to a conference, you know, make sure you don't, you know, hook up with like one or two people and kind of hang out in a corner somewhere for that hour and a half, you know, spend maybe four or five minutes talking with somebody. And as soon as you start feeling comfortable in that conversation, you know, pick up and, and move on to, to somebody else and don't be afraid to, you know, butt into to somebody else's conver you know, conversation or, you know, 
join another group somewhere because um, everybody in that room is kind of doing it. And, you know, if, if you do it right, you walk away with a handful of business cards. Um, and, you know, just like Alma said, I mean, I've got people that I've met at these things that I talk to on a regular basis. You know, we're, we're constantly, hey, did you run into this? Like, hey, do you know this person? You know, and it just it's so helpful because for the most part, you know, like you're, you're stuck at your desk, you know, you're all by yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's a very solitary existence if, if you don't do that. Um, and, and I don't, I don't think anybody can really succeed in this business if you, if you do lock yourself away. Um, you know, it just, it does, it doesn't work, not in real life. Sometimes I think one of the worst things you can do is go to a conference or an event with your writer friends, because yeah. then all you do is talk to them or you don't, you don't sort of force yourself out of, out of your comfort zone. And, uh, I went to Thriller Fest by myself and I, you know, that, I, because like I know, and I, I, I was, uh, Rachel Heron was there with her friend Sophie and I hung out with them for a little bit and we're really good friends, but like we intentionally didn't, didn't get together too much because I was afraid of that. I wouldn't like step out of myself if I did that. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend to go with my wife quite a bit because she's a writer too. Um, and we'll find that, you know, we'll hang out together, you yeah. know, and that, and that doesn't work. Um, you know, so we'll force ourselves to, to separate at the cocktail party and wander around and then and meet back up a little bit later. Um, you know, and even the conference itself can kind of be like that. Like I go to Thriller Fest every year and now, now I'm at the point where I kind of know everybody at Thriller Fest. So I feel comfortable there. So it makes me think, well, you know, maybe I should put Thriller Fest on hiatus for a year or two and visit a couple of new ones. Um, you know, change it up, you know, get in front of different groups of people, different parts of the country. Um, so I think that's probably what I'm going to end up doing in 2020. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Well, I, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to meet Alma. Uh, she was, uh, you know, great, great interview, a lot of great information. Uh, really, really pleased with that. So any, any sort of, uh, final comments on her interview before we let everyone know who's coming up next week? No, if you haven't read any of her books, definitely check out The Hunger. Um, Stephen King blurbed it. It's a fantastic book. And her new one um, is called The Deep. I believe it comes out um, sometime in the spring. I don't have the exact date in front of me, but I finished it up a little while ago and, it, and it's just as good. Um, she's, she's a fantastic writer. Yeah, especially if you like sort of dark historical settings. It's a perfect writer for you. Definitely check it out. Yep. Nice. All right, so next week uh, we have uh, an interview coming up with Mr. Paul Tremblay. And uh, I first met Paul a few years ago, uh, soon after soon after the first book came out, and uh, was really sort of entranced by him because he's still a full time teacher, and uh, and I love yeah. that. Yeah, he's he's a really cool guy, and I, I ran into him at um, uh, StokerCon at the Horror Writers Convention. I guess about I don't know, it wasn't last year. I think it was the year before. And we, we were sitting on a panel together, um, but right before that, we were both wandering around the the book table, you know, where the books were for sale, and we just kind of ran into each other. And he's he's kind of a tall dude, um, <laughs> and like I I didn't recognize him at first, and then I realized who he was, and we we started talking. And you know, he's again, you know, just like we were saying, like he's one of those guys that I email, you know, like if I need something or you know I've got a question about something, um, you know, we all we all kind of keep in touch um sorry i've got a phone call coming in that's all right <laughs> um anyway yeah so he's 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 a lot of fun to talk to as well um i don't know how he juggles the full-time teacher thing um you know along with writing um that that's always amazed me um but but somehow he, he manages to do it he's 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 one of those guys you know as soon as a book comes out i i grab it you know if i don't have an arc in, in front of me I, like i'm right. first in line at the bookstore because he's just he's got you know these ideas that just come out of left field just something you would never expect and it's, it's hard to surprise people in today's world and he's one of those guys that can do it yeah absolutely and he's got a great taste in music so you guys will hear in the interview we talk a little bit about music but uh paul and i like some of the same stuff so that's always fun to talk about too cool 
All right. Well, hey, man, this was a lot of fun. Uh, we're kind of getting our, our sea legs under us here, you know, getting four or five episodes in and hitting the groove and uh, and feels pretty good and really excited about all the interviews we have coming up. And so that'll be it for this one. And Paul Tremblay's next. So until then, take it easy. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.